welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in. I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Yield Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history. Hey, history lovers, do you have your beer in hand? It's episode six. We pick up in 1768 with soldiers stationed in Boston. And this episode gets really dramatic because it's the first time colonists get killed. Kristen, I'm going to need a beer. Today we're drinking the Triple Threat, a Belgian-style strong blonde ale from Cambridge Brewing Company. We want to thank Craft Beer Cellar. Sorry to interrupt, but we're two strong blondes, so this beer is perfect for us. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Woo! We chose this beer for two reasons. The first is our key player, who is a triple threat. And second is because we have three threatening interactions between the British and Boston rebels today. So, Brooke, get pouring the 750 milliliter bottle. Okay, so it has one of those champagne bonnets, the wire bonnets. I've gotten that off. Let's pop this baby. Hopefully it's not as aggressive as normal champagne bottles. (laughs) Is it coming? (laughs) Kristen had to come in for the assist here. All right, I'll get us pouring. Tell us about this beer. Awesome. So this is a Belgian-style triple, as I mentioned. Triple is spelled T-R-I-P-E-L, but it does have something to do with the English word triple, and that is because in the brewing process, these beers are typically made with up to three times the amount of malt than your normal table beer. So, Brooke, what's our status? The beer is now poured. Huzzah! Mmm. First of all, there's a massive head on this, which is pretty typical of Belgian triples, so I just got a mouthful of foam. Me too, and I loved it. (laughs) I can taste the malt. (sighs) Yeah, this sweet and spicy combination. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Belgian-style triples will taste like iced apple, if that makes sense to you, sort of a very like underripe apple. You'll get a little herbal notes, but then you always get that nice, sweet finish, those malty sugars, and it's very light. Yeah, it is. What's the percentage? 10%. It doesn't taste like 10%. No, unlike some of the wow. other English and Irish beers that we've talked about that are, you know, lighter so you can drink them all day, the Belgians make high alcohol content beers that you can also drink all day. So it's a lot more fun. Cambridge Brewing Company opened in 1989, making it one of the earliest craft breweries in the Boston area. And what makes me super excited about drinking this triple threat today is it was also one of the very first Belgian-style beers ever made in North America. So oh, that's pretty crazy. Good we're for making, them. yeah, we're making history. It's a little bit more <laughs> recent. Beer makes history. <laughs> yeah, a little more recent than what we're going to talk about on the pod today, but still history. Love it! This is gonna be a great beer to drink while we talk about a really fun episode. I'm pumped because we have some major stuff going down. Colonists didn't wanna pay the Townshend duties and so colonies throughout North America agreed to a non-importation agreement. And remember, this is just a fancy word for boycott that was going to go into effect in January, 1769. 
For the boycott to succeed, though, clothing imported from England had to be seen as unfashionable, undesirable, and homemade clothing had to become trendy. Women in Boston got to be involved in this political movement. They began spinning their own cloth to fashion their family's wardrobes. Yeah, girls, fashion becomes political in 1769. It really did. The name of this clothing was called homespun, and it became a sign of patriotism to make one's own garments, shun British fashions, and don this homespun. But of course, not everyone in Boston heeded this non-importation agreement, and they paid dearly. If merchants continued to import goods, mobs would break their windows and vandalize their signs. Yikes. (laughs) I've got something way better, though, Kristen. (laughs) One merchant named Nathaniel Rogers was targeted by rebels for over a year. They threatened him physically, smashed his home's windows, and this is truly disgusting— They smeared Roger's house with a mixture of feces and urine. Ugh, yeah. TMI. (laughs) It's it's so gross. And it's interesting to note that this isn't the first time they use this tactic. It even had a nickname. It was called Hillsborough Paint, which is kind of hilarious. Wow. (laughs) It was named after Lord Hillsborough, who we've mentioned before. He's the Secretary of State to the Colonies. The names of merchants who continued to import British goods were also printed in newspapers. So that's letting everyone know who the troublemakers in Boston are. And one of the names printed included Theophilus Lilly. Great name. Amazing name. Theophilus. He was a merchant with a shop in the North End. And on February 22nd, 1770, he went from just having his name printed in the newspaper to having a group of people protesting his store. The crowd in front of his store was mostly school children and teenaged apprentices, people with enough time on their hands to get into mischief. Lily claimed that he'd purchased the goods before the boycott began, but of course those details didn't matter to this group. And then a British customs officer named Ebenezer Richardson took this mostly peaceful event in front of Lily's store to another level. Now, Richardson, we need to give a little background about this guy. He's widely known around Boston for being a jerk. One newspaper reported that he had, quote, a most abandoned character. (laughs) While married to his wife, he had actually gotten her sister pregnant. Uh, Definitely an abandoned character and just sort of a (laughs) jerk off. (laughs) Yeah. No, seriously. And also, by the way, you don't think of like knocking up your wife's sister as something that would happen in 18th century Puritan Boston. But Richardson bucks the trends here. (laughs) That isn't all. He also had worked as a customs informant, so he would tip off customs agents about smugglers. It's just gross. Potentially worse than getting your wife's sister pregnant. I know it really is. True to being a jerk, Richardson, when he sees this crowd in front of Lily's stores, tries to, I mean, come on, guy. He tries to grab the signs from the kids and yelled at everyone to disperse which obviously turned the crowd's attention from Lily to Richardson. And as Richardson walked home, the crowd followed him and taunted him. He made it inside his home and he and his wife then began shouting at the crowd standing outside. This couple sounds nuts. Yes, they are. And then the crowd responds by throwing trash at Richardson's house. (laughs) Richardson returns the favor. My goodness. I mean, he just can't let it go. He throws trash onto the crowd. Then the group threw rocks and stones at his house, breaking some of his windows. It's escalating. Very quickly, very quickly. And then Richardson next levels this by grabbing his musket, leaning out his window, and firing into the crowd. Mm. Two boys were hit. 
The first, Samuel Gore, was a 19-year-old man who was shot several times in both of his legs and one of his hands. The other person hit was a boy about 11 years of age, some accounts say 12. His name is Christopher Snyder, and he was mortally wounded. He suffered several shots and died later that night. Wow, I didn't know it was going to escalate that quickly. Um, mm -hmm. I know that a lot of people mourn differently. I'm going to choose to mourn today by taking a sip of my beer. <laughs> Okay, that's fair. Sip on, girl. And actually, that perfectly ties in because the killing of Snyder is the first of the threatening situations from the British, the first of three that we're talking about today, actually all happened within a 10-day span in 1770. Okay, so we've got Christopher Snyder. He's wounded. We've got Samuel Gore. He's wounded. And these boys are taken to a doctor who was developing into an ardent rebel. Dr. Joseph Warren removed the bullets from Samuel Gore, but could actually do no more than perform an autopsy of Snyder. Warren was just 28 years of age when Richardson shot into the crowd. I love Warren. Let's turn this a little bit happier. Can we talk more about him? Yes, he's actually our key player today, and Woo. he is also a triple threat. He is smart, good-looking, and brave. Get it. Despite his youth, Joseph Warren had one of the most respected and busiest medical practices in Boston. He even tended to fancy John Hancock's health. After he graduated from Harvard and apprenticed with a prominent doctor in Boston, Warren set up his practice at the age of 23. Whoa. Different medical education yep. back then. Uh, as a popular doctor, Warren was part of an extensive network of people in Boston. And this becomes really important to him developing as a leader in these rebel circles is his access to all these people. He further increased his social connections by joining St. Andrew's Lodge, which was the largest Masonic group in Boston, and also counted John Hancock and Paul Revere as members. Warren would later go on to become their Grand Master, so it really gives him a lot of power and access. Warren looked the part of a charismatic and influential leader. He was taller than most of his contemporaries, and he was quite handsome, if a little baby-faced. He had fair skin and hair, which he often kept in horizontal rolls, which was the rage at the time. Right, we know this because John Singleton Copley, who we talked about in our previous mm -hmm. episode, also painted Warren. And I have to say, even though he's baby-faced, he's probably the most attractive of the men we're talking about definitely. on this podcast. Definitely. And this portrait by Copley, Warren's kind of giving, I was going to say the camera a look, but he's mm. giving the, the portrait artist a look. Anyway, he's sort of seductive. Sultry. He is. And you can see why he would draw the attention of plenty of women, including a teenaged woman who was very wealthy named Elizabeth Houghton, who he ended up marrying in 1764. By the way, we mentioned Mercy Otis Warren. She was one of our key players in episode two. While she bears the same name as Joseph Warren, she has no relation to him. She married James Warren and he and Joseph aren't related. Joseph's new wife's family had money, which helped improve Warren's social position. When Elizabeth died in 1773, she left behind four children and a 31-year-old widower. Ugh, sad. So sad. But with his good looks and charm, as we've mentioned, Warren was not at a loss for female attention and found at least one woman, but likely two, to keep him company in the next couple of years. Ooh, gossip. It is. It's our second affair of this podcast episode. I love it. They're real people. They are. And so here's the breakdown of the gossip. Just a little word about it. One biographer, considered the foremost authority on Joseph Warren, speculated that Warren fathered a child with a woman named Sally Edwards, 
even as he was engaged to a different woman. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to take it back to 1770, and we can imagine uh, what Warren felt when he was examining Snyder's dead body. Christopher Snyder's funeral happened just a few days after the shooting and was a town-wide spectacle. <laughs> this was on purpose. It was designed to incite anger and unity among Bostonians. I mean, an 11-year-old or 12-year-old had just died. Like, I get this. It's a well, big you- deal. Yeah, and don't even use passive voice. He didn't just die. He was killed by Richardson. And so this funeral begins at the Liberty Tree, of course. Several hundred boys march two by two, you can imagine this scene, through Boston's winter cold Mm. for more than half a mile. Over 2,000 adults marched behind the kids and carriages followed behind them. I get goosebumps when I think about this. Yeah, yeah. Hutchinson wrote... Thomas Hutchinson wrote that it was, quote, the largest funeral perhaps ever known in America. Snyder's death made a difficult situation for the British soldiers even worse. You remember from our last episode that Bostonians didn't like the soldiers being in Boston, and they really made a big show of how much they hated them. And so now here we've got a British official shooting a 12-year-old boy. Things are bound to get worse for them. So Captain Thomas Preston reported that the townspeople's hatred for the soldiers grew. Bostonians didn't just hate the troops. According to Preston, they were, quote, constantly provoking and abusing the soldiery. We'll talk about how all of this tension boils over after this short break. If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. Soldiers and townspeople seem to have hit a breaking point on Friday, March 2nd, 1770. As a reminder, Snyder was killed on February 22nd, 1770. A British soldier named Patrick Walker was strolling through the rope walks in the South End. Walker asked the rope workers if they had some work he could do for extra cash. Soldiers in the British Army were underpaid and frequently sought work in Boston to supplement their income. So that's not an unusual request. Samuel Gray, a rope worker, told Walker that if he wanted extra work, he could clean out their latrine. (laughs) These are 18th century fighting words. They are. That's so insulting. And it comes from a potentially dangerous man. We talked about rope workers in the first episode, but they are tough and they shouldn't be treated cavalierly, even if in your mind, one of them has just disrespected you. Walker should have embodied his last name and kept on walking. Yeah, walk on walker but he doesn't Kristen. instead he picks a fight with gray and got a beat down walker then goes back to his barracks and returns returns <laughs> about 20 minutes later this time with eight or nine of his fellow soldiers likely feeling much braver that he now has a crowd with him walker and his new entourage picked another fight with gray this is the same night This is within 20 minutes, (laughs) who had grabbed some of his buddies to join in. The vengeful soldiers were beat a second time. Okay. (laughs) Kristen, (laughs) the losers go back to their barracks. As they should. And return again. As they shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) This time, they had 30 to 40 soldiers armed with clubs and cutlasses. 
When this crowd arrived, rope workers within shouting distance banded together for a humongous brawl, and the soldiers lost. Uh, I can't believe Walker came back for a third time. It's wild. Imagine that. A third time they get beat, all within a span of an hour or two. You can imagine the wounded pride in addition to the wounded bodies that they (laughs) suffered. Now, this street fight, this huge brawl, is our second threat from the British. And we have a whole nother one to go. So this is my cue to take a sip of our triple threat. Mine too. Huzzah! The atmosphere was so tense in Boston that another clash felt imminent. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine getting a beat down three times in a <laughs> row in one hour and just being cool with that. Like, you know, retribution is sort of on your mind or at least in your in your blood and your emotions. Yeah, and actually we hear something from Matthew Kilroy, who was a soldier who participated in the brawl, and he wanted another shot at the Bostonians. He was overheard saying that, quote, he would never miss an opportunity of firing on the inhabitants. So that's colonial bro speak because you can't just fire onto inhabitants. Three weeks after the big fight was Monday, March 5th, 1770s, and soldiers were patrolling the streets. Just so you know, things are about to go down here. Around nine that night, bells from three separate churches started to ring. When the people of Boston and other colonial towns heard church bells, it was often a warning sign of a fire, perhaps, or of a fight. And this time it was a fight. It broke out in front of the Customs House on King Street, steps from the old State House. As you may recall from our earlier episodes, King Street was a really busy street in Boston, in fact, the busiest, and it was packed with taverns and shops, so activity there wouldn't be surprising. Now, this fight began when a young man, a teenager, in fact, who'd been drinking, approached the British soldier guarding the customs house on King Street. The soldier guarding it was named Private Hugh White. The drunk insulted a British officer, claiming the officer didn't pay for his bill for a wig. I love this. I know it would have made sense back in the 18th century, but for us nowadays to hear that someone was insulted over a wig, ah, it's great. And it's going to lead to something bigger. It's very 18th century. White heard this insult against this officer and lashed out. He took the butt of his musket and struck the guy in the face. Mm. The young man fell down and yelled out to all of King Street that he'd been assaulted by a soldier. He grabbed some friends and they began insulting White and throwing snowballs at him. The situation escalated as the ringing bells brought more people into the streets. A crowd soon formed in front of the Customs House. This was not a genteel crowd. Many of the members of this group consisted of drunk laborers. We know Bostonians love to drink, and it's late at night. I mean, they've had plenty of opportunity today. Yes. John Adams famously referred to this crowd as a group of, quote, a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes, and mulattoes, Irish teagues, and outlandish jacktars. By the way, all of those are meant to be insults. True, but they sound like a fun group to me. <laughs> They're wild. There's, so now there's about 30 of these guys taunting White, who jabs his bayonet into the crowd to keep this th- them at a distance. As the mob continued to grow in number, White feels more threatened, and he calls for backup. Seven soldiers and one officer arrived from nearby barracks. So now we have nine redcoats facing the mob. The redcoats load their muskets, 
which as you can imagine, incited the crowd, which now had as many as 200 men. Historians vary between 70 men in this mob and 200. Either way, like I get why they loaded their muskets. I mean, this is a big group for our nine redcoats. And the mob begins taunting the soldiers to fire. Now, remember Kilroy said he couldn't miss an opportunity to fire on these guys? You can't just fire into a crowd. Captain Thomas Preston remembered that the crowd yelled, quote, Come on, you rascals, you bloody backs, you lobster scoundrels. Fire if you dare. God damn you, fire and be damned. It's really strong language. Lobster scoundrels, bloody backs, those were insults for soldiers at this time. They're asking for it. Oh, Kristen, oh my goodness. Kind of. (laughs) If you think that's asking for it with the insults, then the crowd starts throwing objects at the soldiers. Snowballs, oyster shells, and trash. Basically, whatever they could find on King Street. (sighs) Sounds so tense. Right. And then, in an instant, everything changed. One member of the mob, some say a dock worker named Crispus Attucks, threw a snowball that struck a red coat. Private Hugh Montgomery in the shoulder. Witnesses also claimed that the object was, quote, a large stick or a, quote, piece of ice. No matter what, when the object hit Montgomery's shoulder, his gun went off into the crowd. Imagine. Mm. The other soldiers heard this shot and thought if one soldier had fired, perhaps they were to shoot as well. Remember, their lives are being threatened or at least mockingly threatened. So I get it. One after another, the soldiers fired into the crowd. At the end of the shooting, three men lay dead, including addicts. Two men would die later of their wounds. Six additional men were injured in this shooting. This became what we call today the Boston Massacre, our third threatening, menacing, blood-drawing event by the British. I mean... To put this in perspective, too, so much happened in just 10 days. All of the things we talked about in this one podcast happened in 10 days. That's right, Kristen. And what's especially powerful about the Boston Massacre and these 10 days is that the massacre wasn't simply nine random soldiers firing on anonymous crowd. What I'm about to talk about here always... It moves me to think about because it really helps you understand the charged atmosphere in Boston. So listen to this. Some of the men on both sides of the shooting knew each other and not only knew each other, but had reason to hate each other. Samuel Gray, remember him? He's the rope worker who had initially insulted Walker at the docks just three days earlier. And then beat him down three times with some of his buddies. (laughs) That's right. He had been shot dead in the massacre. Many townspeople believed that the shoulder who shot him... Soldier. (laughs) Okay, Shot him in the shoulder, maybe. (laughs) Sorry. Many town... Thank you. Many townspeople believed that the soldier who shot him had also participated in the fight. Yeah. It gives me chills. Yeah, it, it shows how personal things are. One witness even claimed to have seen the soldier pointing at Gray in the crowd before firing. More chills. And three of the nine soldiers at the massacre, including Matthew Kilroy, remember that big talker before, had participated in that brawl. Even though Boston is one of the largest towns in North America, it only had 15,500 people plus these soldiers. So this 
relationship, this dynamic between these two groups would be the crux of the murder trial for the British soldiers. Because as we mentioned, you can't just fire into a crowd of people. Especially if you have a vendetta against the person that you ended up shooting at, right? So was it even possible, given all of this situation in milieu, for the soldiers to get a fair trial? Well, loyalists worried that the soldiers wouldn't be able to. It didn't help that rebels had gotten to work on propaganda surrounding this event. Paul Revere famously engraved an image of the Boston Massacre. He actually (laughs) plagiarized an image by John Singleton Copley's half-brother, Henry Pelham. Revere's image is notable for its inaccuracy. Also, it's notable because you guys all know it. It's a famous image. It's in all of the history textbooks, all of the museums. It's actually on the back cover of my book, too. (laughs) It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Uh, But it shows... British troops resembling a firing squad, shooting at a passive, small, and unarmed crowd. Preston is behind them raising his sword to command the troops to fire, and behind him is the Customs House, which Revere renamed quote, Butcher's Hall. I mean, Revere, it's so obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Further adding to the propaganda, Joseph Warren also helped to write an account of the massacre, blaming the soldiers for attacking peaceful townspeople. Um, So between Warren and Revere, this is legit propaganda. Yes. Nothing about this is what happened on the night of March 5th. Yeah, they're making the, the townspeople seem as if they'd done nothing wrong, that they're not aggressive. This is gonna potentially hurt the defense, but the soldiers had a defense team, including John Adams, who was the attorney from Hancock's smuggling case, who successfully got that case dropped. Doesn't this say something about his integrity <laughs> as a lawyer, you know, being on the side of justice Kristen, and you're such a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted posterity to view him as really fair, and so he took this case. Well, it obviously worked, because worked- I've, I've had this opinion. <laughs> it worked for you. Okay, well done, John Adams. Adams does another good thing, too. Look at that. I'm giving him credit twice. (laughs) I'm proud of you. (laughs) He and the other attorney insisted that Preston be charged separately from the soldiers. They were concerned that if the officer was tried with the soldiers, the jury would conflate all men as equally guilty. The defense got their wish. Their argument for Preston was that he never ordered any soldier to fire. And witness after witness confirmed this fact. Even Samuel Adams, who is practically frothing, foaming (laughs) at the mouth to get some sort of conviction for these soldiers, he claimed that the soldiers were restricted from firing until Preston, quote, first gave them orders. Yet contrary to those very rules, they all did fire, meaning they didn't hear the orders and they fired. Witnesses claimed they heard the word fire being shouted, but they were identified as taunts from the crowd. Preston was found not guilty. Since Preston had not ordered the soldiers to fire, the defense needed to prove that the soldiers then had just cause to shoot into the crowd. According to British law, and that's the law colonists follow because they're (laughs) British at this time, if a person is physically assaulted first, that person can fight back and even shoot their attacker. Seems a little drastic, but sure. (laughs) It's it's extreme. John Adams explained, if you touch a man and that man then stabs you, quote, through the heart, it is but manslaughter. So you're going to get punished, but only slapped with manslaughter. If Adams could prove that the soldiers had been assaulted first by the mob, it would reduce a potential murder sentence to manslaughter. Over the course of the trial, two soldiers were identified as having fired fatal shots on the mob. 
Hugh Montgomery was known to have killed addicts, and Matthew Kilroy, the soldier from the rope walk fight, he was believed to have killed Gray. Because it wasn't known who of the other six soldiers had fired the shots that killed the three other victims, they could not be convicted. Montgomery had a better case than Kilroy because he benefited from witness testimony. A man swore that, quote, something resembling ice hit Montgomery, who stepped back after the impact and then fired. Therefore, under British law, Montgomery could not be convicted of murder. Kilroy has a harder case. Is it because his name is really (laughs) tough for a man on trial for murder? I know. Kill! Yeah. And Kilroy had been at the rope walk fight a few days before and had been overheard saying he wouldn't miss an opportunity to shoot Boston's townspeople. So jokes aside about his name, what more evidence do you need? He's been saying that he's essentially going to kill these people and then he did kill them. I know, but it became very difficult for the jury to convict Kilroy of murder because the crowd had clearly assaulted him and the other soldiers first. Mm. It may not have been Gray who did it, but somebody from the crowd, some buddies from the crowd, had assaulted Kilroy first. Montgomery and Kilroy were both found guilty of manslaughter, not murder. Gotcha. After six people had been killed by the British officials in 10 days, Boston could and should have been more explosive than ever. Yet Boston rebels calmed down for a few years. Super surprising. (laughs) I know. Don't worry. The tension will come roaring back in 1773 when Parliament passes a new tax and Boston finds a new way to party. We'll cover it in our next episode. Woo! And stay tuned till the end of this episode to hear what we'll be drinking next. If you're wanting to learn more about Revolutionary Boston, we have a few easy ways in addition to listening to this podcast. You can read more in my book called Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. You can also join Ye Old Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. Yeah, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, join us for history and craft beer. We also have short videos called History in a Minute, highlighting sites and people from Boston's past. They're only a minute long. We'll have links in the show notes. If Boston can find a new way to party, so can we. Next episode, we'll be drinking something new and fun, you guys. It's a boozy tea. OMG. (laughs) So join us next episode as beer makes history.